0: Grab a cocktail and sit back. Let's learn how we can make a positive impact in our
1: industry. Hey, y'all, it's Bridget here. Guest host Kyle McHugh joined me for a bold conversation with Kathy Renna. Kathy is the National LGBTQ Task Force Communication Director and is a regular presence at Creating Change. Kathy has executed particular expertise in crisis and strategic communications, playing a central role in shaping nearly all major issues affecting the LGBTQ community, from the beating death of Matthew Shepard in 1998 to the fight for marriage equality and the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. She most recently worked with a team that coordinated the historic coverage for the World Pride Stonewall 50, working with NYC Pride. In her near 30 years of media relations and activism expertise, Kathy has garnered placements in every major media outlet in the U.S. and internationally, including the New York Times, USA Today, the Associated Press, BBC, The Guardian, and The Washington Post. Kathy continues to be sought out after spokesperson for LGBTQ issues and has appeared on CNN, MSNBC, and Good Morning America. Kathy shared with us the expertise of a warrior at work to create social justice and positive change. Sit back, grab your favorite El Tesoro cocktail, and enjoy this powerful episode. Kathy, welcome to Served Up. We are so happy and honored to have you on our show.
2: Thanks so much. I'm, I'm super happy to be here.
1: Oh, man. Can you tell us a bit about yourself and a lot of the good work that you do for the LGBTQ plus community?
2: Uh, Sure. Um, So I've been active in the community since late 80s, early 90s. I started my career now. It's a career uh, basically as a volunteer. Um, I really wanted to get more involved in the community. I was looking for an outlet that wasn't just social, that had some level of activism to it. And so I was living in Washington, D.C. at the time, and I went to a panel discussion that was about lesbian invisibility in the media, since, you know, given the time, that was the title, right? And so at, on the panel was a, a woman who had just started the local GLAD chapter and went up and introduced myself and started volunteering. And, you know, back then, There were not not as many folks who were were willing or able to do this kind of work. And so before I knew it, I was running the chapter and I ended up working for GLAAD, which is now, of course, a a huge multimillion dollar national organization that we all know uh, several years later. And I was at GLAAD for 14 years. Uh, I worked at GLAAD through the 90s, you know, up until the early 2000s. And, you know, that was a really formative time for our community. I mean, we were dealing with marriage equality. Don't ask, don't tell. You know, I was um, I had many titles. I was there a long time. So <laughs> I was a community relations manager. I did media training. But, you know, to me, one of the most powerful and meaningful things I did was help with a crisis response when something happened in the community. So, for example, in 1997, when Ellen came out, everyone remembers Ellen DeGeneres coming out, the character coming out. It was huge. It was front cover time magazine. But there was one ABC affiliate in Birmingham, Alabama that was refusing to show the coming out episode. And so I spent a few weeks in Birmingham, Alabama. I had never been before in New York City with some folks who helped organize a a screening. We had it, we had it brought in via satellite from Washington, actually, from their ABC affiliate. And several thousand people came. I mean, it was it was amazing. And it was at that time the largest LGBTQ event ever in the history of the state. So, you know it was really exciting to find myself, like, not just in the middle of these very historical moments, but being able to help, right? Because we went down because we were asked to help with media, with organizing, and, and it was really incredible. And then, you know, the year after, in 1998, Matthew Shepard was murdered. And the day after they found him, I flew out to Laramie, and I spent a good chunk of time there. Of course, he held on for a few days. He Passed on October 12th, very early in the in the middle of the night, really uh, uh, on October 12th, 1998. And you know, I've worked with his family since. I sat through the trials. I've worked with his friends and local community. And you know, the impact of that story put hate crimes on the agenda in in a way that was you know far beyond our community. It opened up doors for conversation about the prevalence of hate crimes. And you know, to this day, his parents are still doing work to educate people about hate. Um, and the impact of hate violence. So, you know, and then of course there were things like marriage equality, all the diverse representations in media, whether entertainment or news. So I feel like I've had the chance to just have my, like my hands on so much stuff behind the scenes and, you know, also, you know, on the other side of the camera. And it's really been an honor and a privilege. And honestly, I was, I grew up very shy. No one would have ever believed that I would be doing what I do now if they knew me when I was a kid, (laughs) including my family. And now I'm at the task force, so I'm the communications director at the National LGBTQ Task Force. After 15 years of doing consulting, I did media consulting for almost all LGBTQ uh, organizations, issues, projects, things like that. And then during COVID, I was already working with the task force on the Queer the Census uh, campaign, which was huge and important. And then COVID hit, and we had to completely pivot to virtual. And over the course of that year, in working with folks, and you know, I, I I've loved the task force for decades. I've worked with them uh, for decades at creating change on projects with, you know, as colleagues. And over the course of that year, it became apparent that, you know, they didn't have a communications director and Kara Johnson took on the leadership role as executive director. And, uh, she asked, and I found myself as my wife likes to joke, having a real job <laughs> and, and being somewhere that is really feels like home, you know, not just cause I, I know them, but because politically from a, from a, you know, a personal standpoint of having very progressive politics and wanting to really be there in the middle of having an impact at what is a very critical time for our community now, as that we've seen the pendulum swing back a bit um, and potentially back further, given what's going on. It just feels, again, like sort of like fate that I, I walked into something where I can hopefully be helpful.
3: Wow. There is so much here that I want to unpack, Kathy, <laughs> that you just talked about. And as we're recording this, it has been a, a very scary week for the world, with Roe v. Wade just being repealed uh, last week. So much there. I want to jump back before we get to the National LGBTQ Task Force and your work with them that's so important because we we covered so much. So as you were a part of this Birmingham experience, which must have been, I mean, I'm like tingled just hearing about it myself. Uh, What a powerful experience that had to be. I remember watching it on TV and how i mean it was a paradigm shift in and for the whole country i think when um that episode of ellen came out and and the conversation the cultural conversation around it so i want to jump back in time for a bit before we come back there so you you were part of that and then you were consulting what was some of that consulting work look like and who were you working with and and how were you helping make those things happen before we got to the task force
2: sure uh so you know after lad i actually worked at a public relations firm for a couple of years almost 2 years and in that time, my daughter was born. So when my daughter was about six months old, I realized that if I wanted to actually see her grow up, I was going to have to just go out on my own. Because <laughs> being an EVP at a firm, even a progressive firm, which is where I was working in New York City, you're just, you know, you're in the office 14 hours a day. So I jumped off the cliff and, and started consulting. And, and literally days later, people were like, now we can hire you because, you know, you don't cost as much as, as you do when you have, you're part of a giant firm, right? And so it was really exciting. I got to work with groups like, you know, just even this morning, I saw the Point Foundation, which is an extraordinary organization. They do scholarships and mentoring for LGBTQ uh, students. And I'm not talking about like, here's some money for books. I'm talking about large scholarships that will help get them through school, through college, through graduate school. And they announced that they have the largest cohort ever of scholars. And I was working with them when they first started and they had eight scholars. And, and help them, you know, get the visibility in the New York Times and grow. And so it was all those kinds of really smaller, for me, organizations that were targeting parts of the movement that were not getting attention. So I worked with the Family Equality Council, which is now what was then called Family Pride, and we worked on the first organized gathering at the White House Easter Egg Roll. You may remember some of these things culturally, right? Two thousand six, hundreds of queer families went to the White House. We I always joke that I've never slept outside the tent for a client again because we had to sleep outside on the Ellipse to get tickets for this thing, which was in office. And they, we, they weren't, we weren't exactly that welcomed, but we showed up. And it was it was amazing because it was one of those things where I was connected as an activist. I was connected as a parent. My daughter came. She was very little. And it was, you know, but it was also one of the first times that our families were that visible. You know, we had Good Morning America doing live shots. We had international coverage. and. And it was diverse families. And you know, at that point, I think Rosie O'Donnell was one of like the only out queer parents, you know, on a large scale or a high level of visibility. So I tried to hone in on, on places and issues where people were not getting the visibility. I was essentially doing what I did at GLAD. <laughs> you know, as my my uh, my friends joked, you can take the girl out of GLAD, but you can't take the GLAD out of the girl, right? And so when I started to see issues emerging, for example, uh, issues around trans and non-binary people. I did a tremendous amount of work with whether it was organizations like Gender Cool, which is a phenomenal organization, youth run of trans and non-binary kids, or working with folks who were putting together projects like the release of Trans Bodies, Trans Cells, which in 2015, you know, Timing's Everything, it came out a few weeks after Laverne Cox was on the cover of Time magazine. And it really was, as it said on the cover of Time, a tipping point, right? It was, and now we see where we are now which is, you know, challenging. In some ways we're seeing backlash to all that visibility with all of these anti-trans bills, but we're also seeing more younger people coming out as trans, more folks working to provide uh, trans-affirming healthcare, more folks working to, uh, you know, not just fight back against the bad bills, but trying to push forward, you know, positive, uh, supportive uh, legislation that will help trans youth and their families, you know? I mean, I've worked with the Family Acceptance Project for decades. Uh, they are an amazing research project out of San Francisco State that puts together just extraordinary materials for families who have kids that are that are coming out to them, whether they're accepting, whether they're rejecting, or whether they're ambivalent about it and they have questions. And you know, Dr. Caitlin Ryan has been doing this work for now almost 50 years. And so helping make sure that we preserve her work and the legacy that that she continues to carry forward for now is super important. So I've kind of had a chance to work on all kinds of things. One of the biggest things, probably the biggest thing I've ever worked on, was living here in New York. I, I handled the communications for Stonewall Fifty and World Pride, which I always joke was the most exhausting, exhilarated thing I've ever done in my life. It was I like, can't imagine. Oh Lord! I mean, we planned that for a couple of years, but the, the wow. last six months were like, I did nothing else. I barely slept. <laughs> I was like, I wouldn't even want to drive from Jersey to New York City. I just stayed in the city at a hotel. We had five million people in New York City for world Pride in two thousand and nineteen what and we, re, we, not, we didn't rewrite history. we wrote history into the public culture. People really learned what happened what at Stonewall, even our own community because of course we're often challenged about teaching it in schools. We had the opportunity to to tell the real stories while well, these folks are some of them are not, but many are still around, and so To me, that was one of the most exciting things that I've I've ever worked on in my life. It was so exhilarating and amazing and powerful to see people come from all over the world to do, you know, we had our opening ceremony at Barclays Stadium in Brooklyn, which I'm going, I'm going tonight for the Liberty game (laughs) for the Pride (laughs) night to think that we had, you know, that was where our opening event was, you know, our closing ceremony was in the middle of Times Square. And I, I, I vividly remember standing in Times Square and Twitter Bought out all the screens, you know, in Times Square, there were all the advertising and all of that. And what they were doing was they were streaming, as they happened, all the tweets that were tagging Stonewall 50 or World Pride. Like, I get goosebumps thinking about it, right? It was just extraordinary to see just everything that came together. And of course, the, that year, you know, the march and the rally and the, all the events were just tremendous. Oh, and I'm- Youth Pride. That was my favorite. Youth Pride, we had over 10,000 kids in Central Park. Wow. Yeah. 10,000 kids. That's amazing. Well, they probably some of them had parents because they were pretty young, but yes, 10,000 people. That's that's super wonderful.
1: I do want to take it back, just like Kyle did, just, just for like a second, for our listeners who are either curious or are unaware of what Stonewall is and what it means to the community. And I think it's important that we address it and we talk about it because it really is the springboard for all the good work, Kathy, that you and so many others are doing today and hopefully won't have to do one day. So can we just take it back just for a minute of, and just, you know, can, can you summarize the importance of Stonewall?
2: Well, so the Stonewall Inn is a LGBTQ bar in Manhattan on Christopher street in the village. Um, and in 1969, uh, Group of folks who were there decided that they were going to stop putting up with the police harassment and um, just the general need to live in the shadows. You know, there's a little murkiness around the history. We, we one of my favorite um, pieces was in the New York Times. It was a video uh, during the 50th anniversary, and it was called "Who threw the first brick at Stonewall?" And it was like, spoiler alert: there's no brick. So, you know, it's one of those things that becomes mythological. But what at the end of the day, what happened is our community, in particularly trans. And uh, people of color, you know, sort of like not not the not the cisgender gay white men, but it was those who were really marginalized and on the fringe, stood up and said, "We're not going to take it anymore." And and that uprising was not the first. There were there were similar uprisings in San Francisco, Los Angeles, Philadelphia, and there was work that had been happening. The Madison Society was picketing the White House and was picketing Independence Hall, starting in like 1965. But for lots of reasons and maybe it's just my, because of what I do, but I think it's because it got a lot of media coverage, but the, the the Stonewall uprising was really, was a spark that ignited a tremendous amount of organizing and the formation of different organizations like the Gay Liberation Front. And then in 1970, the year after, the very first, what they called then the Gay Liberation March in New York City, which has, you know, turned into Heritage of Pride, NYC Pride, and has sparked, you know, so much activity around the world. If you go to Europe, you will find that there are prides that are called Christopher Street Pride or Stonewall Pride or Harvey Milk Day. Like it it was that, you know, that influential and that, you know, sort of like that kind of historical moment that really ignited. Like they say, like uh, one of my very good friends, Mark Siegel, who was a teenager and was at the Stonewall Inn that night, says it's the spark that lit the torch. And I think that he—that's a perfect description of it.
3: It's something that we have to continue to talk about, so that people understand it and that people can continue to learn from it. And you know, it's—it's it's like any other metamorphosis, or again, kind of paradigm shift moment, right? If we—if we, if we forget, then we can easily take steps backwards. And as we were talking about, that's we're—we're we're seeing steps backward. I mean, Kathy, it must be again just hearing the the passion in your voice, seeing what you saw in 2019 uh, around 50. Seeing how far we'd come to have the closing ceremonies in the middle of Times Square, from you know that moment at Stonewall to then see you know where <laughs> where we are now and some of the challenges that I mean seem to be waiting. We have a Supreme Court justice who just said here are a bunch of cases that directly will remove rights that have been codified that he is looking to, to attack. So. I want to come back to the work of the task force also. Uh gosh, again, there's so much, but I'm really curious to hear from you like what are the biggest challenges that you're seeing given the current climate that we are, you know, gearing up to defend against in order to maintain the rights that we've earned for everybody.
2: Well, and and that's what we're 150% in and working on at the task force and have been, you know, all through the Trump years. I mean, We saw so much progress during the Obama years. You know, we saw marriage equality decisions. I had the the complete honor of working with Edie Windsor, who was just extraordinary after she won her court case. And she could sort of just be herself, who was she was something else. Um, (laughs) And and I think that it's been really painful to watch. I mean, it's been painful to watch us go backwards. It's been painful to see the backlash to the visibility of trans and non-binary people with, you know, the anti-LGBTQ laws and organizations organizing. I mean, I think the, the bigger lesson here is that representation matters. It matters a ton. But if it doesn't come with political power behind it, you know, if we're not doing the work we need to do to work in the court systems, to work in all of the institutions where, you know, these rights come from, Supreme Court, you know, political process, local school board elections, like all of those levels, the representation is not going to be the thing that saves us. I mean, that's, I focused on representation for a long time because we just weren't visible. But we're very visible now. And what people need to do now is to get engaged, you know, it's, and move beyond that. You know, we can't be, get comfortable because we see ourselves on television and we read about it in the news, right? And so I think that's why another reason why I was really thrilled to come to the task force, because the task force is all about democracy and equity and building power at the grassroots level and also at the national level, the policy level. Because that's where the, the institutional change can happen that will really be longer term and long lasting. You know, as we've seen, we've seen things, you know, go backwards in some ways. We've seen increases in hate violence. And this, you know, I mean, the Supreme Court stuff is just so concerning. It's really very frightening, actually.
1: You know, we're all parents. Um, the three of us are all parents. You know, I have an 18 year old daughter and with the Supreme Court ruling, I'm losing sleep you know, just losing sleep for her and for all of our kids. I guess my question to you, Kathy, is, and this is a big question, it's a simple question, but what can we do? You know, what should we be doing? What should our listeners be doing? What should men be doing? What should women be doing? What should everyone be doing to make sure that we're leaving the community, our world, just a better place for our children? Because right now, going backwards, that's not the solution
2: it's not an option. I mean, my daughter is 16. She'll be 17. She identifies as part of the LGBTQ community. She lives in Texas, you know, so I got a lot of boxes to check off in the concern area, right. As a parent. And in some ways it's interesting because her generation, you know, they sort of shrug their shoulders at a lot of this stuff because they've, they've grown up in a much more visible atmosphere where there's a lot more discussion within the generation and intergenerationally. But the, the, you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the bottom line is that things have hit the fan and people need to get engaged. There are so many different ways to get engaged. You know, if you want to get out in the streets, get out in the streets. I was, I've been out in the streets for the last you know, week and a half, whether it was for Roe or whether it was for Pride. That kind of activism is still and always will be incredibly important. But there's also, you know, you can also get engaged at home. Make sure you're registered to vote. I mean that we have we have launched our queer the vote campaign. You can go to queerthevote.org. You can sign up for text alerts for you know local and national elections. Make sure you're registered. Make sure the people you know and care about are registered and that they're they're actually getting engaged. You can support so many of the organizations that are out there doing the work. You know, at the New York City Pride March, um, Planned Parenthood kicked off the march, and the response was extraordinary. And there are some places where I will personally be supporting Planned Parenthood, the ACLU, Lambda, the task force, the folks who are really on the front lines fighting this stuff, because there's a lot a lot of work to do and it takes a lot of resources. So, you know, you can do that. You can do that from your couch. You know, you don't have to leave the house if you don't want to get out in the streets and protest. You can do all of these things at home. And I think that having conversations with people in your circle, there's so much misunderstanding. There's so much ignorance, there's so much education that needs to happen. And you know, we are we are dealing with now this really interesting climate where, you know, like I said, culturally we're very visible and there's a lot more acceptance. Public opinion's on our side, whether it's you're talking about reproductive justice or whether you're talking about marriage equality. But that's not how the votes are going. That's not how the courts are going. You know, so we can we have to figure out a way to engage people to help us with that work. Because public opinion is not enough, obviously.
1: Yeah, I agree with you 100 percent and engaging and being part of the protest as well. And, you know, I brought my daughter to our Women's March last fall and it was scary and it was scary for her. And, you know, at, at that time, a 17 year old. And I remember handing her my purse, which had cash in it. And I said, you need to look around to see where you can run. First of all, if you do need mm-hmm. to get out, because there were the anti-protesters coming at us and it w- it got bad. And I said, also, there's bail money in there yeah. Yeah. because I'm not going any. I'm going to sit. I'm going to sit here. But if something happens, you got to get me out of the clinker. Mm-hmm. So that's, she's like, yeah, what? I was like, yeah. And, you know, just, you know, that's just that's showing her this like the real world. Right. And yeah. not just But I, I agree with you. It's so important for us to to stand and to stand in and and stand up. And and it's not easy as a a parent always to show our kids reality. So thank you for your work.
3: Sure. Of course. It's been something that's been on my mind is the fact that it seems like there's been this nefarious plot. And that sounds dramatic to say, but the stacking of courts at all levels, Kathy, Mm -hmm. that you were talking about, And I love what you said of, we had to get visibility for the community first, right? And that was a huge part of it. But now where we're at, at this advanced stage, and kind of where the dominoes have just fallen, we're realizing that it's not just visibility, it's actually influencing and having the ability to influence policy at all levels that is going to drive it. It's the next evolution. So as we're we're on that doorstep, as we're on that cusp, like, what are the ways, I mean, you said get in the streets, we can do things from the couch by supporting great groups like like Lambda or Planned Parenthood or so many different worthy causes. What are we going to be able to do to fight against this nefarious plot? I'll keep with that language of stacking the courts. How do we best do the policy work that needs to happen? Is it just through voting or is there more we can do?
2: No, there's a ton more you can do. I mean, it's been really interesting to look at how the anti-LGBT organizations, and I would say anti-progressive organizations, conservative, right-wing, they've been infiltrating school boards. You know, They're they're very much at the local level. I mean, I live in a very progressive suburb of uh, New York City, Montclair, New Jersey, and there are folks standing up at our school board meetings. And my wife is a teacher, not far away. Same thing's happening at school board meetings where she is in, in New Jersey. And they're using the same language. They're talking about us grooming children. They're talking about drag queen story hour being dangerous. Like, I mean, they all sing from the same song sheet and they're all very much in lockstep. And I think it's really important that we make our voices heard. You know, that is, again, that is something that you can do as a parent, something you can do as a community member. I mean, support for local organizations is really, really important because as you said, and and I totally agree, the fight is right now at the local and state level. So, you know, supporting your state level LGBTQ organizations, there's the Equality Federation. We work with them a tremendous amount. Some statewide groups in certain states are huge, like in Florida or New York or California and have a, a tremendous amount of, tremendous, a lot more resources and influence. But then if you go to other states, you know, if you go to an Alabama or a Georgia, you know, or Missouri or Ohio, there are there are less. And so to me, it's really, really important that the folks who are on the ground and want to get involved, like educate yourself, find out who are the organizations that are doing the work where you live, where you are. And then find ways to support them, and that can be again—it's all the things I talked about before. But it can also be showing up at your kid's school board meeting, even if it's just to be supportive. It's—it's really—it's very, very disconcerting to see this language being used in places where, you know, I mean, New Jersey—we have a ton of protections. I'm not worried about, you know, we have strong gun control laws, we have you know strong voting rights laws, we have a great governor now, right now. But, you know, those things can change. And so we really have to stay engaged in our own backyards.
1: Yeah, that's really that's great advice. You know, it all starts at home, right? It all starts where you live yep. with your with your community around you.
2: You know, it's, it's funny because it feels like, you know, this feels very much like deja vu from maybe 25 years ago, the task force. And I was at Gladden and helped out with this. They did a phenomenal campaign called Equality Begins at Home where there were actions at every state house and every state capital in the country to try and beef up local organizing, because that's, that's the hardest, you know, not very glamorous work is rolling up your sleeves and knocking on doors, talking to your neighbors, getting people engaged and involved. It's very easy. in especially now the, the, the culture in which we live where we're like inundated with information, inundated with news, inundated with things, busy, you know, on our phones, you know, 12 other things at the same time and multitasking to get people to to, to focus on this stuff. And, and if we don't keep our eye on the ball here, like you said, what could potentially be happening next in the Supreme Court and at the state level is really, really frightening.
1: It's terrifying. Can you talk about the task force itself and the support that it gives and the programs? We'd love to hear about it.
2: So the task force is, it's one of the oldest organizations uh, in the country. Next year, we'll be celebrating our 50th anniversary. So I guess I, I get to do another 50th anniversary. <laughs> they were joking that at least I have some experience with it. So, um, and I'm really excited about that. We're going to kick that off at Creating Change. And Creating Change is just, it is a, it is a community gem. It always has been. I think I, it's been going on for 40 years. I think I've missed like three of them, you know, birth of my daughter, some other emergency. Um, it is a, a conference for activists and advocates in the queer and progressive communities to come together to learn. To reignite, right? By by having time together and to also plan and organize, like literally in real time. And, and it's in the beginning of the year. So it really is a it, it's an extraordinary experience to then have for you know going into the a year of work, right? So next year it's going to be in February uh, in San Francisco. We've never had it in San Francisco, so it's pretty exciting. And we'll be kicking off the, the 50th anniversary there. Uh we've had to do it virtually the last two years because of COVID. And while, you know, we do virtual and hybrid events all year round, it's going to be really nice for, for thousands of us to come together. And so that is one, as one of our major, major programs. It's probably something that, that people know the most about the task force. Um, you know, I, like I said, having worked with the task force for the, all the 30 years of my career, one of the things I've always appreciated and also kind of like shrugged at is that the task force is one of those organizations that they play so well with others that sometimes they hide their light under a bushel. So what I love about my new position as communications director is that I get to make the task force more visible. And under the leadership of Kira Johnson and Maida Hidalgo Salazar and our policy director Liz Seaton, like, we have amazing voices. And so what I love is that the, the task force has become an even more visible, even more powerful progressive voice in the queer community, which we really need to teach our own about why reproductive justice is important. Racial and economic justice is important. Um, You know, gender equity is important. Democracy, voting rights are important. And then being a more visible queer voice in the larger progressive community. So standing next to Planned Parenthood and standing next to all of these other organizations that need our support and voice and helping. So, you know, there are really like three pillars that we work from. One is queering democracy. And that is where we work with FedWatch, which is a coalition of, of organizations that are, Monitoring policy at the federal level, um, and working to help shape and make more inclusive of LGBTQ people, like our "Queer the Census" campaign was tremendously successful. It was so successful that the person who ran it now works at the Census Bureau. So that for me was that's a win. We're now working on "Queer the Vote," which is a voter mobilization, education. We'll have people on the ground in like key places where we can really make a difference. There is still a significant number of LGBTQ people who are not registered to vote. They need to be. And for those who are registered, they need to educate themselves on the issues and, you know, voting rights in general, which we see are very much under attack for all marginalized communities, queer people, people of color, et cetera. And so, you know, the the democracy piece is really important. I mean, there's some stuff we do that's more behind the scenes in terms of supporting um, like presidential appointments and nominations. Like this administration has been, you know, really, really proactive in reaching out to create diverse staffing, you know, whether it's Pete Buttigieg or whether it's Dr. Rachel Levine, but there are so many other people at all levels of the federal government that, you know, we've supported. And it's really important that we weigh in as as an organization and do all we can to help make sure that the folks that are in all of the different federal agencies uh, truly look like America, which is something that we weren't seeing with the prior administration. I won't say the name. Um, (laughs) and then the other the other huge piece of work that we do is um working equity. And it's about legislation, anything, you know, that we can do to help promote equality, to ensure that we're visible, that we're recognized and that we're part of every community. And you know, that that is obviously we do that in lots of different ways of different issues. And again, because the task force is a queer a progressive organization, everything from ending hate violence to queering sex education to queering reproductive rights and freedom. I mean, we were, we were in front of the Supreme Court last December when the hearings were happening around the Dobbs decision. And, you know, we had folks out there the day that it came down and in other cities around the country um, and at rallies in New York City. And that's a, a huge, huge piece of our work. And part of it is helping the community understand that queer rights are reproductive rights and reproductive rights are queer rights and how it's really at the end of the day about bodily autonomy. Justice Thomas has teased at, he's talking about marriage equality. He's talking about sodomy laws. These things are all interconnected. And then the, the final, really the big piece that we do, which I've always been very proud of. I mean, for years when I worked at GLAAD back in the nineties, like if you came into work on a Monday and you said you'd been out partying and having a great time and that was fine. If you said you went to church or synagogue or temple, people will look at you like you yeah, had three heads. So one of the main, big pieces of work that the task force does is queering faith and working with faith communities. We've seen a ton more acceptance and embracing of LGBTQ people. We've seen much more visibility of queer people of faith, not just in the pews, but in, in the pulpit, right? Our new, um, faith work director, uh, Reverend, um, uh, Nicole Garcia, Is a Latina trans woman who was the first ordained minister who was trans in the Lutheran Church, you know. So having that kind of visibility and those voices, I mean, we have um, we have a trans seminary and cohort where we really help recruit and and foster increased representation of trans people in faith denominations as leaders, um, which is really important. We have a national religious leadership roundtable. You know, these are folks that we mobilize when things are happening, because the days of gay versus God are over. Like they, they, there's so many people of faith in our community and you can be a person of faith or a person who is an atheist and does not want to have a faith, you know, tradition, all of those should be valued. And I think it really has been an extraordinary part of the work that has helped shift the discussion some, because, you know, I, I remember the days of when you, when I was debating somebody on Fox news or on, on CNN or MSNBC, it was always a, an LGBT activist. And then like a pastor. And and to me that's apples and oranges. How about we get a gay pastor and then an anti-LGBT pastor? Let's see. Let's see them. You know, settle it up. So uh, those are those are sort of the the big things that we work on.
3: Yeah, it's almost like they're setting up. They were setting up. We're trying to still, I think, a, a media narrative, especially on certain media outlets, that uh, the opposite side of progressive rights for all is the church, right. and uh, that is in a country started on. Good, quote unquote, uh, puritanical values that wonderfully to hear. And I didn't understand some of the work being done in, in the queering faith movement. When you are a part of these communities and and get to be visible and get to know people, this country is so large. And so many people, they just don't have a firsthand experience with anybody in some of these communities, right? They don't understand uh, other than whatever, again, media that they're digesting, which is so more isolationist than it's ever been for all of the different options. I've never seen us so locked into the echo chambers of the confirmation bias or the bias of our neighbors confirmation than we have now. So to actually be able to get into and have conversations with these communities and have everybody realize, oh, we're all human beings who are all raising our kids or going to work or drinking coffee, like everybody is is so much more similar than than what they're hearing, I think, in the media narrative.
2: Well, and I think that that's the thing. I mean, at the end of the day, it's I think finding common ground is incredibly important. And appreciating the fact that we are different is also really important. Like, I remember for for years in the the LGBT community, we all fall along different parts of a spectrum when it comes to like how we want to talk about these things. But, you know, the folks who wanted to say things like, we're just like you. And I would always push back on that because, you know, we're not. And that's okay. I wouldn't want to live in a world where everybody was just like me. I'd be bored. So it's about understanding that my family is constructed very different from my sister's family. But we're all one big family, you know, <laughs> and we can all come together and, and, you know, and appreciate those differences instead of feeling threatened by those differences, because that's what it's really all about. I mean, you know, they, they call it homophobia and transphobia for a reason, right? It's a fear, but it's a fear based on ignorance and a fear of difference. And I think that that's, a, that's the real challenge that we face, you know, and, and why it's so important that for all of the activism that we all do, you know, for those of us who this is our work to me, it's about everyday people, you know, like the folks I saw lined up, like literally a million people lined up at the New York city pride March. You know, when you're inside the barricades in the March, it's actually a really interesting experience because you're seeing, you're seeing people, you're seeing just regular folks. And there was a a young trans boy who I walked up to and I asked if I could take a picture. He was with his mom and he had a sign that said, this is my first pride. I'm like, you know, I literally like, I get goosebumps as a parent even. And his mother had like a like a rainbow. It was really hot. She had a rainbow sweater on, which I was like, girl, (laughs) what are you doing? And he was just beaming. And he was beaming because that's what pride's about. It's about realizing that you're part of something much, much bigger, but also something where there are so many people who are so different from you. I mean, and that, that to me has always been the most moving, exciting, interesting, or I don't know, there's like a billion words I could use, that's why I love working in the queer community because yeah, sure. There are some folks that I have tons in common with, but I meet so many people who are so different and who are so interesting. And that's a good thing. I just wish we, we could flick that switch in everybody else's head so that they would realize that. Well, we're going
1: to keep working really hard to flip that switch. Yeah, <laughs> Our
2: work's not done. It's not no, done. No, <laughs> near. Not in my lifetime.
1: No. Um, can you tell our listeners where they can find the LGBTQ plus task force? and where can they get more information?
2: Sure, absolutely. So we're, of course, on all Mm -hmm. social media platforms at the task force. Um, Our website is www.thetaskforce.org. We are uh, also, we have a separate microsite for Queer the Vote. So queerthevote.org will take you to directly to ways to get engaged around the upcoming elections, which would be great. We have all kinds of, you know, these days, we have so many more tools to reach people, whether it's a texting to, you know, get them to send them information on activations where they live or national activations. Um, so folks can find us on the web. They can find us on all social media. And yeah, I, I would highly recommend that everybody just take a moment to follow us and other organizations as well to see uh, and make sure that they know what's what's going on. It's a, It's a really, really important time to get engaged if you're not already.
3: And that engagement is is those little steps, right? It starts with the incremental things. Follow the task force, follow the social, start to get a part of that information feed. And this is true for all communities everywhere, right? I love what you said of the inextricable link between everybody who is potentially being marginalized and and under assault. Like We could be seen as so disparate, but in fact, we have to link arms. It's never been more important because an attack on reproductive rights is an attack on queer rights is an attack on racial rights. It's just it's a different side of the same cube. And if we don't all link arms and protect rights for human beings. Then this other very well coordinated nefarious plot that is using the same language from the same script in the same places. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's terrifying. They, they are going to, they're going to get us unless we join together and fight back for everybody's rights. And I think that's so important. And it starts at home. It starts right. locally. It starts by voting, by getting in the streets, by do- donating to those uh, organizations that we were talking about earlier. But it, it takes every single individual who cares about human beings' rights to go do something actively in their backyard.
2: Yeah, and, and I think that you know the, the core of it is. So our tagline for the task force is "Be You," and we take we take that very seriously. We also have a our campaign around the Equality Act was called "All of Me, All of the Time" because what you're saying. At the end of the day, like I'm not a woman on Monday, a lesbian on Tuesday, a parent on Wednesday. Like I'm all of those things all of the time. And for so many, all of us really have multiple identities. What we bring to the table and what we care about is reflective of all those different identities. And I I always try for years. This was how I explained it to journalists, because they would see our community and they would see gay white men, basically, especially in, in the 90s, you know, early 90s, try and explain that our queer community is basically a microcosm of the entire culture. So like what brings us together around our sexual orientation or gender identity has nothing to do with our age, our race, our economic status, where we live, where we come from, all of those things, even our politics, right? So helping helping people understand that and, and approaching the work that we do as the task force does by taking all of those identities into account, it's not easy. But it's really the only way we're going to do it right. It's the only way we're going to do it and bring everybody along with us, because we've seen what happens when you don't. You know, when you when you don't bring along and leave behind, for example, the trans community, which has happened in our community. You know, I, I always I say this all the time, and sometimes feel a little bit like the bad guy. But like the truth is, our community needs to deal with our own issues of racism and sexism and transphobia and uh, classism, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, right? There's a long laundry list of those isms. But they exist because we represent, you know, across culture and community within the larger population. So we got to do our homework at home as well. And I think that's a a really important piece of this that, again, is something that I I deeply, deeply appreciate about the task force because they are we're so intentional about it. And and I think it's really important because if we don't do it this way, we're not going to really make the kind of progress we not just want, but deserve as people.
1: Well, Kathy, I want to thank you on behalf of the Served Up family just for coming in, showing up, gracing us with your presence and your messaging. That's so important. And we would love to have you back on again to maybe do a part two of this if you're up for it. Um, we could speak with you all day. We also want to know that this is a resource to the task force served up as a resource as well um, to be a springboard to be a microphone mm-hmm. for the messaging that everyone needs to hear. So as your friends, your allies, whatever you need, yeah. we got you. Thank and you.
2: Yeah, no, we really appreciate the support and the, and the partnership that we have with you. So this is absolutely. great.
1: Absolutely. And I, you know, and I, I want to thank you for your time, for your efforts, for your good work. And I want to wish you some great health during this time and just a whole lot of peace. Thank you. And, and cheers to pride.
0: Thanks for listening. Served Up is brought to you by Southern Glazers Wine and Spirits. Produced by Zunu.online. Music by We Kill the Lion can be found on Spotify. Make sure to subscribe to be notified of future Served Up episodes. Cheers.